Hey guys, Dustin Wynn, and you're listening to Bat Force Radio. Hey, this is Scott Snyder, and you're listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Paul Dini, listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, and you're listening to Bat Force Radio, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Bat Force Radio, the Batman and DC podcast with no limits. We are all locked safely in our homes, as hopefully all of you are, as we just talk about comics. Today we have got Bat Force Tom in California. How you doing? Grandpa Batman in Texas. Howdy. And I'm Robin Cross in Canada. And today's guest joining us is known for his work on titles like Batman, Wonder Woman, uh, Martian Manhunter, Supergirl, and the Batman Shadow crossover. And he is about to begin his first work for Marvel Comics on Darkhold number one, along with Kian Tormey, who we spoke with just a couple weeks ago. Welcome to the show, Mr. Steve Orlando. Thanks so much for being here, Steve. Uh, how are, you know, notwithstanding the current situation, how's life? You know, it, it, it's good. It's relatively, uh, again, and I stress relatively unchanged uh, for freelancers. You know, as long as we're still, we still have comics coming in. Uh, to write, uh, and they're eventually going to be coming out to you. I mean, I'm not going to the gym every day, but otherwise, it's uh, I've been working from home for six years, so it was a pretty easy adjustment. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I know a lot of creators are right now saying, "Oh, what? I can't go out." <laughs> As yeah, if I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. You were hitting the gym pretty hard, though, man. So, like, that's a big adjustment. So, what what have you been doing? Like, have you been trying to keep up with it, or is I mean, it just I like at this? I still do a lot. Uh, it's just in my house or I'm running outside. Uh, you know, I'll wrap up work after this today and then I can, I'm going to, it's a long run day. So I'll, I'll, I'll go and there's an arboretum behind my, my guy's place. So we will, uh, run there and, uh, we're just trying to, you know, trying to not backslide too much. I'm sure my, my neighbors across the street have bizarre opinions about the hour and a half of office work or or office exercise I do, but whatever. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm going a little insane, let's be clear, lifting dumbbells in my house, but such is life uh, in a time of pandemic. Right. I saw where a guy ran a whole marathon in his backyard. He just ran circles. Oh, wow. Well, that's the type of mania that I will never uh, personally have. Uh, <laughs> it's like a rat in a cage on a spin wheel. Yeah, that, that, that's a little bit above my, my level of madness, right now at least. But, you know, let's, let's see what happens. Uh, yeah. So... Uh, as it's your first time on the show, if you wouldn't mind, uh, what is your comics origin story? What what was the thing that made you decide this was what you wanted to do? Well, I, uh, you know, I was, I started going to conventions and trying to break into comics when I was uh, 12 years old. Uh, wow. It was a long, it was a long run, um, you know, because I didn't really get in until, in, you know, by some metrics, 28 or 29. So... It took a minute, but we got there. Uh, the, as to why with uh, my w- with comics, you know, I always I was very 
interested in art as a kid. I've been reading comics since I was, or at least looking at them uh, since the mid eighties when I was younger. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And then uh, Electric Superman came around and this was around the time I also realized that my uh, my visual art was not something that I really thought I mean, I can do it. I actually wrote and illustrated an entire book in college for my thesis. So I've done everything involved with making a comic from top to bottom. Mm. But it was clear where my hypothetical talents lie. I mean, it's up to you guys uh, to, to decide my talents. But it's where the things that I could get paid for lie uh, were going to be in writing. And I realized that first when I was looking at this editorial about how they came up with Electric Superman back when I was living in Syracuse. Because that was right when I first started buying like off-the-rack weekly books. I've been reading comics since the 80s. But we didn't have um, like a drug market comic store where I mm -hmm. lived at first. So it was like flea market stuff, West Coast Avengers back issues that I bought. Or it'd be like whatever issue of Clone Saga that I had at Walden Books and the Spinner Rack, you know. But then we got yeah. one, got into Grant's uh, and Howard's JLA, and uh, I, w I was deep in uh, at that point. And that's just when Superman had become electric and surely was never going to go back to how he was. <laughs> and so I thought it was jumping on point. Um, and that's when I sort of learned the different jobs and what I thought would be most interesting to me. And within a period of years is when Marvel did uh, the Nuff Set event. And at that point, Grant, who was the main person I was following at that time, uh, was on New X-Men. They did the Nuff Set issue. I got to see what his scripts looked like. And uh, it was off to the races. I was, I, was, I was taking my bad scripts to conventions and asking uh, writers for advice and for 20 years did that until someone decided I was finally worth, uh, I had finally come to a professional level, at least the baseline of professionalism. And that's, I mean, that's how we landed my first book at Image. And that book led to my first book at DC after a lot of, a lot of time building relationships there. What, at 12 years old, like, um, man, 12 years old, having your stuff together enough to know to start going to conventions to like break into it. Like what was, what was that timing kind of like? Cause I, I, when I look back when I was 12, I mean, I don't even remember what I was doing. I was like not – I knew I was not putting things together to present for a career. That's crazy. I was probably not choosing my own pajamas at 12. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't think of much else I wanted to do, and I didn't see a reason. And I, I'm also extremely egotistical, so I definitely thought that my scripts at 12 <laughs> were you know, on par with what was coming out. This is obviously a lie. I mean, I mean someday I'll maybe find the – the things I brought to Wizard World 2000, uh, which was my first con, uh, and it's like, it's real bad. It's like Beast watching Emerald Live, because, you know, I, I, I learned weird things from comics. I had read Starman, and I was like, oh, what makes characters relatable is topical pop culture references. So, you know, yeah, I had this whole scene of, like, Scott coming in, and here's Beast being like, oh, I'm watching, I'm watching, uh... You know, my favorite cooking show, boom, because I knew I couldn't say bam because of copyright law. Uh, you know, I was always acutely aware, bizarrely, of copyright law. When I was in fifth grade, I really wanted to do a, a book about how the Pillsbury Doughboy was a superhero. But I knew I didn't own the Pillsbury Doughboy and could get sued for that as a, as a, as a fifth grader, which is, you know, unlikely. But it was a worry of mine. So I made a book called Clone Dough. And it was the Pillsbury Doughboy, but his cape was plaid and not blue. And thus, he was a different character. It worked for Mortal Kombat. So I Who thought, was your dream artist for Clone Dough? I drew that shit myself. And it was <laughs> <laughs> Can you share some of that on your socials? 
Oh, it's gone. It's gone. I think oh. I might still be up in my fifth grade teacher's uh, room if she's not a fossil yet. I think one of my teachers does have a Spider-Man I drew in like third grade or fourth grade, which is more to me. Uh, I think uh, Riley Rossma would draw the hell out of Clondo. Well, he does like uh, he does like weird body horror. That's why we mm-hmm. get all together. So I think at uh, twelve years old, I was drawing photos of like my life, and I remember one time. Uh, my dad took me to get a haircut that sucked, and I drew this photo of this kid sitting in a chair, basically just getting a bowl cut, and I titled it, He's Mad at the Barber, and uh, that that was my comics. Yeah. Meeting. Sounds like Steve was a little ahead of you. He's <laughs> a little bit more advanced than me, obviously, and it's worked out well for him now. Well, I didn't, you know... I was not a huge fan of, 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 of the popular children's sports. So, uh, you know, we, uh, we had to find another outlet. Um, so, I was so never, at, never good at baseball, football, or lacrosse being from the Northeast. So, But at 12 years old, like you knew enough about what you loved that, no, this is what I'm going to do. That's like nothing else. This is it. Well, we hoped, you know, but at the <laughs> same time, uh, at the same time, like, you know, there's less jobs at DC Comics than there are at the New York Yankees. So I knew it was unlikely. I mean, I went to college and I was a Russian lit major, so extremely useful. Uh, (laughs) So I I took the natural path and I was a wine and food specialist for like 10 years before I broke into comics. So I had no illusions over the fact that I was just going to slide right in the comics industry. but, you know, it's, you know, I, I just, I, I'm an ext- intensely stubborn person uh, and was not willing to, to quit. It's why I think a lot of my mentors, uh, my main mentors, Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly from Man of Action, um, I think that they respected that because, you know, as I, as I talk to them now, it's like, you know, there were a ton of kids like you who were like 13 or 14 who we gave really overly harsh advice to and said to come back next year. But the difference is you came back every year for 20 years. Wow. Um, you know, and a lot of people don't. And, you know, was, I, I owe everything, a lot of my attitude, uh, including my brusqueness to, uh, to Steve Siegel. But it was, it was helpful, you know. I mean, every year I would bring him a new book and he would say, well, he didn't really waste time on what was good because that's what your mom's for, he would say. And uh, <laughs> he, would, he would tell me, you know, what needed to... Uh, one needed to become stronger to be professional level. And he had always said when I finally didn't have anything in that category, he would, uh, you know, push me in the right direction. And sure enough, when I did, he ended my pitch to Eric Stevenson. And that's how my book Undertow uh, got, got approved, you know. And so he made good on a promise. It was just a two-decade promise. And I think <laughs> that he liked that I was belligerent and willing to, to stop. That's awesome. Uh, I don't know if this was uh, in, uh, if you were working in editorial or something, but uh, at some point I had read that in your early days that you were working with or working under uh, Will Dennis. Uh, no, I was not working in editorial. Um, I mean, Will was another guy. Will was one of my first contacts at DC, so I was never working under him per se, but he was another guy who like every couple months would check in with me and I would send him pitches and we would always try to get something off the ground. Um, 
to varying levels of success. I mean, that said, Will gave me my first work at DC, which was in the uh, uh, Strange Adventures anthology in like 2012. So he was another guy that was like, you know, when when the stars align right and I can help you out, I will. And sure enough, they did. It just took 12 years. Oh, what's that like to be this guy trying to break into the industry and have Will Dennis in your corner trying trying to help you get there? I mean, it, I will. Will is an asset. He is another guy like Siegel that doesn't really beat around the bush. I think I was lucky that. There's a lot of lip service uh, providers in, in the entertainment industry, but I, by, by chance or, 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 or fortune, uh, ended up with people looking after me uh, when I was younger that were not really in that business. So, I mean, Will would tell me when something was crap and had no shot, uh, and then he would tell me when things had a shot, and, and, and then he would tell me when they, he couldn't get him over the home plate, you know? So we did that dance for a long time, and... Again, when I had finally gotten to a place in the early 2010s where I was doing professional level work, he gave me my first and my second uh, gigs, which were both Vertigo Anthology shorts. Yeah, you've sort of uh, sprinkled around a lot of those uh, anthologies. Like it's it's always fun to find some of your work in. Uh, you know, d- to this day, DC puts out uh, those like 80 page anthologies and. Uh, you can usually find something uh, something from yourself in those as well. Yeah, I mean, they're a fun little challenge. There's there's one that hasn't been announced yet, too, uh, from before I sort of made my semi-exit from D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's fun. You know, it's hard. The crazy thing is that they give those eight-page stories for people to break in, but it's way harder to tell a complete eight-page story than it is to tell a complete 20-page story. So it should be the reverse. Um, yeah. Obviously, the eight-page stories cost less, so that's why they, they, they do it that way. Nice. Now, some of the things that you, uh, some of the longer runs that you did, like obviously the the really public stuff like uh, Wonder Woman, and uh, specifically I wanted to ask about Martian Manhunter. How does how does that come about that you uh, end up taking on Martian Manhunter for, for doing the 12-issue maxi? I mean, I labored for that. Like he's been my favorite character probably because Grant uh, wrote him so well in Justice League, and that's oh. that my first my first foray into the DC universe uh, outside of like trading cards and things, as I was saying. So I mean, he always stood out to me, and and not just the design, but his powers, his his sort of stoicism. Uh, and so when we were coming off Batman and the Shadow, which is when I mean the Shadow is my favorite character not my favorite dc character but my favorite character so having done that with riley it was our second book together after we did night of the monster man and i just realized that uh we'd like to do something to build on that and we sort of brought that together ourselves we developed uh we developed some some concept art for it i sat down with dan uh at um uh san diego comic-con 2017 and, and and just labored hard for it. And, you know, we got it across the plate. Uh, I think the success of Mr. Miracle helped us because it was the same format. And, uh, you know, coming out of it, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done, DC or not. Yeah, I remember reading uh, before it started that uh, you had said something about that you had wanted to write that story your whole life. And between your passion for that character and Riley's art being 
absolutely perfect for Martian Manhunter and for that story because they go you know, with the mix of the Earth stuff and the Mars stuff. Uh, the, everything just uh, really clicked on that book. Yeah, I mean, and I will not take credit for Riley's art because he's incredible and probably my favorite collaborator. But what I will say is that I will take credit for the fact that he had no idea who that character was before I explained to him why it was the perfect book for us to do. So <laughs> um, I'll take credit for the casting on that book. And then I just got out of the way uh, and let him do, do his incredible thing that he does. Uh, I have to say that you surprised me, spoilers if anyone hasn't finished it yet, but <gasps> you surprised me with giving uh, with giving him a happy ending. I, I, I don't Whoa. know why, but I was expecting hey, kind of uh, a this? tragic end. Well, you know, the tragic, I guess the reality of that book is trying to make it more like life. And it's, uh, you know, the, he has a tragic end, but like all of us realize this, it's not really the end, right? Oh. Like he has a, his, his low point in issue six. But, you know, in, in real life, we got to find out what to do the next day. And so uh, that's actually a lot of what the book is about. Like he he ha essentially has two reverse arcs, his Mars one uh, going as low as he possibly can go. And then that's where his Earth one starts. And he finally finds a way to get actually even higher than he ever was on Mars. Mm. Yeah. Um. But, you know, that, that that's an important message to me. You know, if we're going to do a book about the most, quote unquote, the most human character in the DC universe, as people like to say, then I want it to be a good message, uh, even even if it's one of struggle, because, um, you know, that that's real life. But at the same time, we don't want to. It's important for me to show that it was about having these intents very human, even if they're sort of uh, painted in this in this bizarre Martian culture a uh, series of problems, but then it's a book about overcoming those things. It's a book about how, you know, if, the, if, if John was a character, I soon realized that your Supermans and your Wonder Women and all these people would look to. We love to say he's the heart and soul of the Justice League. Well, how much must he have overcome and suffered and surpassed for people like Wonder Woman and Superman to say, oh, well, whatever's going on in my life, this guy gets it. I mean, when I really thought about that, I realized his struggle and his eventual triumph had to be extremely profound for them to know it and look at him and sure that he's the one that would always understand and that they can they can look to for a shoulder. That's a great way of characterizing him. I did that. I never really thought of the, the 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 Titans or the Trinity that people kind of think and relate to most are actually looking towards him for for a kind of uh, inspiration. But when you started that series, um, I, I think from the from what I remember at the time, there was a big lack of Martian Manhunter in DC at the time. Um, was it a kind of a mix of you always just wanted to work on that character or was it also like, hey, we need to bring this guy back right now? Oh, it was just I always wanted to work on that character. You know, we actually I mean, I had known that. Uh... I had known that Scott was going to be doing stuff in the in in, in the modern book, the Justice League book with him, pretty big. Mm. So it was it, it was a nice confluence of events where he's getting this evergreen sort of adult uh, series at the same time as he's getting this very mainstream treatment uh, in Justice League. But the key for us was just telling a story with him that was going to really be the iconic Martian Manhunter story, which is what we hope we did, and we had to wait a little bit. When I joined, you know, when I joined DC with DCYOU, my friend Rob Williams was doing a Martian Manhunter book, and 
it's unfortunate that I ended up being friends with him because when I saw that, I immediately thought about just murdering him at the. <laughs> but, but it turns out I enjoyed his Welsh charm, and we and we became friends. So I wanted to let I, uh, which and I enjoyed that book a lot as a science, especially in like a high-minded sort of almost Philip K. Dick science fiction book. So I wanted to, you know, before I pitched Martian Manhunter, there was this push and pull of like. You know, this is my favorite character. I got to get this. I got to get this going, you know, before the worm turns, because who knows? Anything can happen. It's not like I'm going to be here forever. And I also don't want to just steamroll Rob's book. So it was it was a de- delicate balancing act. But um, I don't know. Getting that book approved is probably my favorite thing that I did at D.C. So, wow, I, um, I'm, I'm very I'll always be very proud of that. I would say, I, I mean, it's great to hear that that that's a, a big pride of yours, I would also have to highlight for you, if our listeners don't know, um, your run on Midnighter and Apollo. Um, that I mean, because that's when I think of you, that's kind of like what I think of to stand out, um, especially because it was such an impactful thing for a lot of you know younger readers, readers in general, is the kind of um, the representation that you gave for those characters and for readers as well. Um, that was a good. I mean, I think you you said at one time this is the story that that comics needs right now at the time. I mean, and it seems like that's the kind of guy that you are where you look and see what inspires you and what would be a great story for people to kind of get inspired by. What do you think is something that people need right now? Yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm proud of Midnighter. It's been interesting. I mean, it's six years ago, and I think I've done a lot of work that, uh, you know, as you said, I've been continuing that credo with a lot of work since then. And and Mm -hmm. it's always going to, it's always going to continue. I mean, I I don't know uh, what my next sort of main series like that is going to be. You know, I'm doing this this book at Marvel Darkhold, but that is very much like a blockbuster, which is a different uh, it's a it's a different uh, thing altogether um, mm-hmm. when it comes when it comes uh, to storytelling. Um, it's interesting uh, because I don't know. You know, you want to say, you want to say we need something that is going to sort of bring us together right now and 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 remind us that we're here for each other. But I, you know, I, I think like any person in this country, I'm I'm struggling with that notion uh, when there seems to be there seems to be very little that could actually do that. Uh, and right, so, right. So that is both my answer, but I also don't have the solution right now. Mm. Like, it's hard to write. I'm doing this book, uh, hopefully an original, and um, in the next year and a half. And it's funny, like, there's there's this idea, like, how, how can you write any type of satirical political element right now? You know, <laughs> what, is, what is unbelievable? And so it's hard. Like, I, I desperately, as a person, don't want to believe Uh, And I don't want this whole I don't want to talk about this for the whole show, but it is challenging, you know, uh, throughout the the current uh, administration. It's been hard to be on Wonder Woman and be on Supergirl at the before that and write about compassion um, in a time when we seem like we're severely lacking it. Yeah. And and it 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 gives me pause. And if anything, I think we need to be doing it even more. but I also wonder, you know, half the time it feels like we're, you know, fiction is supposed to be, um, we hope that the world is like 
yeah, is like we uh, write about in these books, or that it could keep going in that direction. But it's hard, you know. Mm-hmm. I it's hard to answer that question, you know, in a time of global pandemic when we're still playing, you know, the blame game. Yeah. So as as hundreds and hundreds of our fellow citizens die, so it's tough. I mean, I want to say compassion. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like it, it came it came upon me that like especially on Wonder Woman, someone who puts compassion before violence, like uh, it's wish fulfillment, and and I wish it wasn't, but I do still still think we need that right now. Um, I don't, you know, I think we need it more than ever, uh, and and I don't know exactly how to crack that. Because like many creators and perhaps other people, I was naive and thinking, you know, just, it just takes the right point of view. It just takes the right story, the right anecdote, the right narrative to show people that you should care about other people. Um, but, you know, here we are. And, and uh, it does unfortunately make me wonder, maybe some people just truly don't. And, and, and that's been a challenge in of itself. I was talking to Phil Jimenez uh, about Wonder Woman in that respect. And and he really put it in perspective for me, even though it's a little dark. He said, you know, like what, you know, Diana thinks because as I write her, like, you know, Diana doesn't really think anyone is beyond redemption. And she does think that if people could just see that what they were doing was harmful, uh, then they wouldn't want to do it. And Phil said, OK, well, what happens when she meets like just someone who actually is a sociopath who does not who just doesn't work that way? Uh, you know, what would that do to her? And and that's. You know, it inspired me for some of the things that have happened on the book when she meets Gorilla Grodd in the annual. And she says, oh, well, can't you see that if you did things a different way, there wouldn't have to be this warring, uh, this, this, this warlike situation. And he says, well, it's not that I don't understand. I don't misunderstand. I just don't want peace, you know. And so um, she's had to wrestle with that. What I've done is sort of put my indecision into these books and my and my and my disenfranchisement into these books, because. It's tough, you know, again, like I, 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 I haven't, I'm happy for every single reader that we have in comics, but it always breaks my heart when I see like, you know, people who will have like number one Superman fan down with Islam, down with, down with Dems. Like, do you even understand the character you're reading? <laughs> you know, um, how are those, how do those two things happen? And, and it just, it, it saddens me and I don't know how to solve it, I guess is what I'm saying. Cause I can't understand a mind that works like that. So I don't know, you know, like, I don't think, I think I was naive when I did Midnighter actually in a way that is sweet, but also, um, I was a different person, uh, back then. And, and, and it's interesting to me, you know, yes, I thought it was the stories that people need and what comics needs right now. But I could have never predicted how threatened people would be by that representation, which we've all seen. Mm. Uh, so, so you know, in the in those six years, we've seen that some people truly don't want everyone to be part of comics uh, and have these stories, and that's a challenge for me. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about it as readers and 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 and, and uh, media folks, but it's hard because I do feel like we need this work more than ever. More than ever, people need to feel. Like they're part of a community. Do you this, feel that writing and comics um, has changed based on feedback or response from social media? It hasn't for me. I can't speak for other people. Um, you know, that's good. I, that's what we. I hate it when you know, and a writer or an artist starts 
going you know down a path and then you know all the the trolls get on twitter or whatever and 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 start attacking comic creators and then things change well i hate that it's sad to me that people are so bothered by something uh that that ultimately doesn't affect them and oftentimes Mm -hmm. and oftentimes it shows their disconnection from the media that they um claim that they claim to be defending you know we had wonder woman 88 last week and uh i've i do not sort of seek out uh things that i'm not tagged in on social media for my own well-being <laughs> i had a couple people uh directly engage me about it because it's a book in which maxima uh it goes back to al Morak and and sort of makes the first start towards uh, changing that society, which is you find out has been based on this, this, this uh, hegemonic lie, this, this, this patriarchal lie. And in fact, their society is founded by two women. And so Maxima can rule with a woman at her side and shouldn't be, it doesn't have to be forced to marry uh, Prince Ultra. And, you know, there are people not happy about that. Uh, and the the few that directly engaged me when I got through the sort of like condescension, it did sadden me because I said, you know, like you're allowed to, and these are public, so I mean, like my my tweets are can be seen there. I said, you know, you have every right to feel however you want about it. And they're like, oh, Maxima, you made her gay uh, for your for your expletive type agenda, and yawn, white male villain, and yawn like you made her body type. Uh, you know, less sexy and more, you know, part of the agenda and all these things. And I said, you know, it, you have every right to feel that way, but I'm just going to say this is how Maxima has been since 2015 for five years. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. Yeah, you know, the people the, that, that quote unquote made Maxima gay, which is not even the case because it was a reboot and that was just how she was reintroduced, were the folks on the crucible arc of Supergirl and the and and those are the same folks that uh, redesigned her for her new for for her first new fifty two appearance. Uh, so it's been that way for five years, and it was really heartbreaking to me. I mean, a that people would mind that this character uh, was represented that way, but also uh, it, it shows you this thing that you claim to feel so strongly about. Uh, you haven't even really followed or embraced because. Right. This, this news is five years old, um, and, and 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 that saddens me, you know. Um, and to be fair, like I wasn't mean to them, you know, which is hard because I'm from Central New York. So my initial reaction is to just be like, "Fuck you, my friend," but I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> can't do that. And 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 because the fact is, like, it's just like it, it's 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 not be- it's not productive. Um, right. But at the same time, it does sadden me because, you know, her nothing, all the things that they thought had happened with this issue really just proved that they have not been following the characters they claim uh, to be uh, to be such defenders of. That that was uh, very visible also when um, a couple years ago now, when the promotion began for the Batwoman television show. And you could see the people come oh, out of the woodwork. Oh God! They had to make her gay. How uh, dare they? Had like, you dude, ever what? picked up a comic book? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's 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 followed me. My my reverence for continuity and past stories has been uh, a sword and a shield for many times. Many, you know, when I started on Supergirl, I, I'll always remember 
at the uh, at the WonderCon sort of DC Rebirth premiere, I said, "Oh well, you know, Zorel's Cyborg Superman," and the whole crowd like gasped, like I had just revealed something. But that was that was a new fifty, like that had happened four years ago in Supergirl, mm-hmm. uh, in the in whatever the lenticular cover special that introduced Cyborg Superman before I was even at DC was, you know. And it more showed to me, I mean, A, it's symptomatic of a failing on both the publishing side because we've let these fans lapse. Um, mm-hmm. But it was very evident as well because like, oh, well, you think I'm spoiling something, but it's just the way that character's been for almost half a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, it uh, wasn't my idea <laughs> in, <laughs> in many cases. And I mean, even Maxima being queer was not my idea. I took advantage of it. Uh but and I and I'm very happy with that story. But it's uh, it's not the you know, it's not one that came from me. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's just it it saddens me. And I don't you know like it's uh, and I was never that type of reader. So uh, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of sort of disillusionment because I realized maybe I, maybe I was never the average comic reader I thought I was. Uh, mm-hmm. And now as a creator, it's like well, I mean, I'm only writing for myself, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe myself is not the average person. I don't know. <laughs> I th- yeah, well, I think, uh, I honestly think the, the average reader person doesn't really care. It's just that on Twitter or wherever you find these small pockets of people having this outrage, it's just, that's that's where it's all concentrated. So, you know, um, but yeah, you're right. It's just sad. It's sad that, that uh, people are so blind, or they, they have these blinders on that informs their opinions and they're just so completely off most of the time that they don't even know what they're talking about. But, you know, that's why it's awesome to have uh, guys like you in the industry writing what you like and what you, what you uh, put out. And uh, people don't realize it's like, if you don't like something, you don't have to read it. <laughs> like what's well, the point yeah. of look without naming names, cause that would be unprofessional. There are plenty of books by my peers that I don't read. And, and, and some of them, by the way, are very good. They're just not my, uh, not my brand. Um, you know, uh, let me let me think of an example of someone uh, that a great just to prove the point. Like, okay, Wicked and Divine, a, a fantastic book, and I read it, and it just like I don't know, like the storytelling, it was sort of laconic, and it just wasn't exactly what I was looking for. But that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, Jamie and Karen are great storytellers, and I'll give any new thing that they do a shot. It just wasn't my thing, and you know what? That's and you have to, when you like weird storytelling, like me especially, you have to understand that. Like, I love Twin Peaks, but and I think it's great, but, like, that does not automatically mean that it's empirically great to everyone. If I showed Twin right. Peaks to my boyfriend, he would be like, well, we're not a couple now. Because, <laughs> what was that? Like, ten, 10 episodes of, like, hello! Yeah. You know, what, what are we doing here? It actually yeah. ended my friendship with Frank Barberi from Five Ghosts because he was staying at my living at my house for like a couple uh, for a couple of weeks, and it started. And he had never watched it before. And he the first episode he watched was this completely I don't know if you guys watched it, but I think it was episode eight, the one that is like there's no story. It's just about like it's all like this hour long collage of horrific imagery about the nuclear bomb uh, going off. And it ended, and he was just like I like what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> You know, this is the it, new one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, but I, but the point being is, like, yes, what you guys are saying is right. Like, things can be good or bad, but they can also be good and not your thing. Right. You know? And and that it's, is totally fine. 
It's like, um, you know, you like you were mentioning earlier, Scott had uh, his version of uh, Manhunter on his book, which was that was the main Justice League title, correct? Yes. Yeah. So he had, you know, he had that team book and it was a very much like a space like opera, like action. And, you know, they got to go back in time. They got to go to different dimensions. And yours, same character, much more human approach, you know two completely different stories, two completely different books. Like there's no point in complaining. Like don't read it. Don't read Scott's. You know what I mean? If you don't like it, like there's so many different choices that you can take. And it's just seeing people complain on Twitter is just also, it's just, it's like not Ricky Gervais has this. I mean, people, you know, love or hate Ricky Gervais, but he has this actual funny anecdote where he talks about like someone on Twitter complaining or, or, arguing is like walking up to someone's home knocking on their door and being like i don't want to talk to you today <laughs> it's like well, okay I, I will admit i think that social media is a boon and also sort of an albatross because it does it has sort of changed the mindset and it's not one that i'm in as a fan you know like mm. Interesting. i i mean like first of all when i was younger like i did not have access to the creators of of comics i could go to comic cons and yeah like I made, you had to go, first of all, like mm-hmm. I think networking inroads through physically meeting creators, but the icons of comics for me, people like, people like Grant, Grant lives in a fucking castle in Scotland. He, there's no way for me to impart to him my opinion on any of his work, good or bad, just not possible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he doesn't do email. His wife answers his emails for them, for him. So like there, it's impossible. And there never, by the way, would have even crossed my mind. So it, it is all sort of fascinating to me because I think it has changed our culture. Like, I didn't like The Irishman, but I'm not going to, like, pay 10 bucks for IMDb Pro, get Martin Scorsese's agent's number, and be like, hey, <laughs> tell him to fuck off. <laughs> like, do something, I know old man. Like, like, no, I don't know. Like, it just, it would never cross my mind. I didn't like it. That's fine. Yeah. You know? Like, you didn't have six hours short on time. It seemed like it was six days. <laughs> there was yeah. a lot of driving wasn't there my main thing the only like yeah it, i can't even the main thing is like i understand the gimmick of the digital de-aging but i also am kind of over it because you can't change how someone moves so all it looks like is old robert de niro in a young right. suit uh like having arthritis and beating people up <laughs> uh, i didn't get like yeah he looked they, they all looked really old there, there was no help in that and also, like, I just like how Joe, Joe Pesci has got to be, well, like, 195 years old, and his face looks like a leather purse. And it's, <laughs> like, I like watching him be old. He looks like, he looks like a, like, an, a, his, his skin looks like it's orangutan face material. Uh, and it, and I just am fascinated by watching him. Like him, I would like to watch him and Edward James Olmos uh, have, like, a face contest and just, like, sit in a breakfast <laughs> That's a show that I would pitch. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a fun gum. You know, the, a combination that I've always wanted strictly because of their accents is a podcast by uh, Grant Morrison and uh, Billy Connolly. That would just be magical to listen to. Well, I have no problem understanding Grant, but there is a, there is a non-insignificant number of people who say that his brogue is too thick to understand. Um, I don't think so. I don't know what they're talking about. What are these seeing? <laughs> Um, you know, if you ever run into Chris Batista, he'll do his he'll he'll do his minute and a half long Grant Morrison impression, which he'll do with almost no provocation. 
about how Grant likes the Superman story where Superman shoots tiny Superman out of his hands. Uh, <laughs> I know now, we're running short on time, so uh, do you mind, or would you like to talk about the uh, Batman Shadow crossover that you helped create? Sure, we can do that. How's it going? Dude, I, I love those books. Um, and I'm glad that you said that the shadow was one of your favorite characters because uh, he's also, since these have come out, become one of my favorite comic characters also. So these books kind of steered me in that path of researching and finding more comics and graphic novels about the shadow character. Um, can you go into how that came to be and uh, the whole creative process working with Snyder and then also on your own on the sequel? Well, I mean, like, I think it came to, I mean, it came to be because obviously Scott is well known for Batman and we had been acquaintances and, uh, I, it was no secret that I was a huge shadow fan at DC, much like it was no secret that I was a huge Martian Manhunter fan at DC. I had always told Dan that if they ever had a chance, uh, if DC ever got the shadow back or anything that like that, that was like my thing I had to do. I would, I would come to California and I would physically put my hands in the mouths of other people uh, until they weren't breathing to get them out of the way to write that book. So it was well known that I liked the shadow. Um, so when the opportunity arose, I think it was just, uh, you know, people knew that Scott and I at least somewhat knew each other. And for all Scott's mastery of Batman, he wasn't that familiar with the shadow as a character. So it just was sort of like, let's put these two folks together that really have a strong, unabashed love for these characters and see if we can't get the best story out of both of them, you know? And I love that with Shadow, I mean, he's kind of, you know, gritty and dark like Batman too, but he also involves a little bit of the mysticism and, and supernatural element as well. And I loved how that was interweaved with Batman to also explain, you know, he was there from the beginning and helped mold and guide Batman through his whole life's journey. Well, and that that was the key to us. You know, we love to say that Batman's just a man. Uh, you couldn't. I mean, I'm air quoting because he's just a man with billions of dollars, but he's just a man. And part of being that is mortality. And so we realized that at least in the bounds of this sort of closed loop of these stories where they can reference each other, that the shadow could be sort of the living embodiment of that. You know, and not just the fact that he maybe or maybe not guided Bruce, as you said, because you aren't sure. Um, but by the fact that in in that mystery, Bruce has decided he's the world's greatest detective. He's going to figure out who the shadow really is. It You know, it gnaws at him. He, he can't stand it uh, because he feels that as the as the, as the world's greatest detective, there's nothing he can't figure out. And in the shadow, we realize that his his true power from a, from like attention standpoint is that he is truly unknowable. And so as you've seen in the book, that was our big thing. We realized like Batman is just a man still. And so even he has some things much like us that he'll never know. And that's extremely hard for him. Accepting that he'll never know uh, is, is, is nearly impossible. And, 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 and once we figured that out, that that's why these characters will always have this intense sort of love hate relationship the story sort of grew from there. But it's, you know, the shadow, they are very different. I mean, the shadow influenced Batman's creation in real life. And he's in some ways a le uh, less of a finished product than Batman. Um, I mean, I love him for it. He, he's, he's idiosyncratic and mean 
and uh, almost like incapable, belligerently incapable of growth. I mean, Batman chooses to be Batman. The shadow is punished into being the shadow. Um, and and I think that there is <laughs> something almost like uh, you know very endearing in his stubbornness, right? Like his own inability to 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 realize his own bullshit maybe in my opinion makes him more relatable than batman <laughs> but, um, but but that's why i've always liked him and yeah it was, and it was a chance to just present this this character that sort of for lack of a better phrase makes batman on some way feel the way batman makes everyone else feel and then in the sequel that you wrote you know by yourself the shadow batman uh, published by dynamite and dc then you add damien to the mix Oh my God! <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that was that was the question of like, how can we keep it fresh? Um, <laughs> but I think it, it turned out great because, in some ways, he sort of is a synthesis, even though he's a brightly clad character. He's sort of a synthesis of of elements of Batman and the Shadow. You know, he is mean like the Shadow. He is he is cold and sort of, especially in this point in his career, sort of inhuman like the Shadow. Um, but he's also analytical and uh you know still more humanistic like batman so putting him in there allowed him to be like oh you guys are like a weird crime fighting family shadows the grandfather batman is the grant is the is the son and damien is the grandson and much like in real life like there's you know there's there's tension between the son and the father but then the grandson comes around and the grandson and the grandfather kind of get each other you know right any chance for a trilogy uh, I mean, I would do it in a second, uh, for sure. Uh, but I will say it's probably pretty unlikely because you have to align those two companies again. And plus I would have to be at DC and I'm, I'm not there so much right now. Uh, but I mean, look, like I said, like I, I would write them in a second. I would write the shadow. I would love to go back to the shadow at some point in the future, uh, and do a little more time with him because I, he is really one of my favorite characters ever. So we hope so, uh, in some fashion, um, but we'll see what's up. I mean, the, the future is a long curve, we hope. And this is just my own personal selfish uh, question. Do you have any like specific shadow recommendations, like specific titles or books to, to go read more of? Oh, I mean, if you haven't read the original Chaikin miniseries from the 80s and then the follow-up by Andy Helfer and uh, Bill Sienkiewicz and then Kyle Baker – uh, ongoing, I would definitely read them. A lot of the way that I write him is is an evolution of the way he's written there, and they've been collected by Dynamite, so they're out there. Um, yeah, every time I walk into a shop, that's like first area I go to 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 find more. I've got you know this app on my phone that you know cl- you collect which issues you have and stuff like that. So I'm constantly looking for more Shadow stuff. And he like the, I I love those series because it is it shows the way he's not a good dude right like he right. Like, <laughs> like there, there's no other way to say it like when we were working on the series the way scott and i talked about it is like batman is interested in justice shadow is just interested in punishment uh he's, he's kind of punisher of, he's like the magical punisher <laughs> yes except for him he's really punishing himself True. Uh, uh you know because he was a terrible terrible person before he right. became shadow yeah, and he's, so, he's atoning for his own sins yeah uh, yeah, and so it's 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 like the Punisher, but it, it, it's there's a little more depth to it. Um, and so you know, 
a lot of that comes from the from the 80s series for me the idea that you know all of his the people you know, he saves you uh and then you know suddenly you're calling him master like a lot of the things he does he behaves like a villain he's just a villain that's on our side and even that like it's funny when you even think about the things like even in the 94 movie which i love for all of its being a piece of shit um <laughs> You know, even that, there's some things when you think about him, what he says to people, you're like, wow, you are kind of an asshole. Like the first guy he saves, Roy Tam, is this uh, nuclear physicist. And he shows up and he says, I saved your life, Roy Tam, and now it belongs to me. So, like, everything he does is transactional. Like, he is an asshole. Um, and I find, and again, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm just deeply fascinated by him. He is a guy who... It's nice if he saves people's lives, but what he really likes is making criminals shit themselves. Uh, and and he and he is vengeful. I mean, like he in some ways is a lot more like us. He's petty. I mean, he, even again, even in that movie, like Tim Curry almost kills him, and he could just stop Tim Curry later, but he drives him insane and makes him kill himself. Um, you know, in a very Tim Curry way. <laughs> and so, like, yeah, I mean, it's uh. He's a complicated character, uh, but but like I said, I will I will always love him, and I like the idea that you know essentially if you're weak-minded, he's he only he, he has power over you if you yourself give in to fear and pettiness and all the things that of course he himself is super fucking prone to, uh, you know. So that uh, you know perhaps it's that hypocrisy that makes me think that he's just like us. <laughs> I have no idea. That's a really dark take, but there you go. So yeah, it's always those complicated characters like that that. I think writers like yourself love to explore because they can go in so many directions with them, you know? No, definitely. I mean, like he's, uh, there's, there's just so much I would like to see. I, you know, there's, there's an element, uh, hopefully I get to go and, and write some shadow again. Cause again, you know, he is, uh, he's someone who only plays by his own rules for whom there are no boundaries, which is just like what they say in the dark Knight about Batman. And it's true, except the shadow cares even less for the mores of society. Uh, you know, in, in a world where the shadow was real, you would hear about him haunting like world leaders and 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 these, you know, the like people like the pharma bro. You know, any, anyone who thinks there's no consequences for their actions. You know who the pharma bro is? Before I move on past that. No. Uh, no. He's this guy that tried to privatize HIV pills and make them. Oh, oh, oh that okay. asshole. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. But, like, he, he's a guy for whom, like, when there's someone who thinks that there are no consequences, the shadow is, like, the ultimate consequence. And I just and I just love that about him. It's a fun anthology. The Spectre is like that, too, by the way, on an even grander scale. Uh, but that's, you know, and I would love to write the Spectre someday. But. Ooh, Spectre shadow uh, crossover. Before we run short of time here with you, uh, a couple weeks ago we spoke with Kian Tormi, and he told us a little bit about what you guys are doing with Darkhold, uh, that you, you're bookending an event over at Marvel. Uh, and I, at the moment, as long as nothing changes, I believe it's scheduled to uh, to come out June 24th. Uh, do you want to take us through that at all, what to expect at all? Yeah, well, Darkhold is, uh, and we hope it comes out then, uh, Darkhold is... Built very similarly to uh, the event I did with Gerard Way called Milk Wars, uh, in that we're going to have these 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 oversized bookend issues, and then we'll have these stories that happen in between that are more specifically character focused. So, in Darkhold, we reveal, um, and I'll say a little more here. 
Um, you, you know, when, when reading about the Dark Hold, you've seen the Marvel Universe, you see that it is uh, it's a copy of a copy. It's, it's a copy on parchment of a copy on stone of the original version that was written on skin, like the Necronomicon. And so at the beginning of Dark Hold, Dr. Doom digs up the real version, the original version. And uh, yeah, being Doom immediately reads it. And uh, even though it would cause anyone else on Earth to go mad, uh, Doom is just fine because he's Doom. But the issue is that he's now finally made the strongest connection ever to Cthon, who is this sort of Cthulhu type character in, in, the, in the other realm uh, that helped write the Darkhold. And so the story brings together Scarlet Witch and Doom, who have to dive through the book and find any type of way that they could potentially stop Cthon before he comes and invades our world in a physical form, which he's never really been able to do before. He's always had to possess like Quicksilver or Scarlet Witch or, or work through sort of vessels like that. But now because they found his original book, he can just come on through. Uh, and so in doing so, uh, we reach the Darkhold Defenders, who you'll see they're on the cover of the book. Uh, so I'm, I'm not really spoiling anything there. And they find in the sort of ancient sort of myths within the within within the book, because Doom can read it, uh, these five heroes that once drove Cthon back into the other realm at the cost of their lives. But they did. And uh, they cast this, this summoning spell to find the people closest to it. Uh, in the present day. And that brings us to Spider-Man, the Wasp, Blade, Black Bolt. And uh, an Iron Man. And these are the people that eventually have to make the decision, you know, will they go to confront Cthon? To do so, they have to read from the Darkhold themselves and temper themselves. They have to go a little crazy. They have to go a little mad to be able to survive this sort of mind-bending other realm and defeat him before he can cross over. And so... That decision plays big in the first issue. It's this sort of cosmic horror type take on, on a superhero blockbuster. And uh, as you might imagine, uh, they end up reading it. And then what you get in the one shots is these, these sort of broken, fractious new histories that they've imagined for themselves, that they've seen for themselves in the dark hold, where they've taken different paths that have truly driven them to ruin and madness uh, and made them into versions of themselves where they can survive and confront Cthon. So it'll play a little bit like Tales in the Dark Multiverse, uh, but with, uh, with with a different focus for sure and different outcomes. We're working in cosmic horror, uh, as I said, for this, and that's always sort of been our North Star. But North Star's not in it. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so nobody's listened to this. How does it end? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But you will see a lot of fun stuff in the, in the second issue. I'm waiting for notes back on that. Um, I will say I've seen the covers to the one-shots, and they're really, really cool. What I really like about this is, you know, Marvel came to me, and they said, oh, well, you know, I don't know if you've ever done anything like this before. It's two oversized one-shots, and then a bunch of uh, uh, one-shots in the normal-sized one-shots in the middle that other people are going to write that you have to tie together. Have you ever done anything like that? And I said, yeah, not only did I do something like that with Milk Wars, but I ran it myself, which, I mean... Um, uh, and so what I'm excited for is it really is like that in that I'm doing the bookends and I created the skeletal structure for the whole story, but I've been very hands off and I, uh, with the one shots in between. And that's just like Milk Wars. You know, we gave core ideas, uh, to people, Gerard and I, for the one shots like, uh, the uh, Shade the Changing Girl and Wonder Woman, for example, or, or, or Batman and Mother Panic. Um, and then we let people go. 
you know, we trusted them to do their thing. And that's what's happening here. So I've seen the covers uh, to the one shots with these characters and they are just really, really fun, unexpected takes uh, that are, that are, that are no rules. And, and the joy of it is that, yeah, I actually get to step back. Well, I get to step back and sneeze in one second, but um, uh, maybe not, but I get to step back and, and, and watch these other great creators do their thing. And then I get to come back in uh, and sort of harness this energy they have in these one shots for this big finale that's going to come up after. And, and I love that, you know, like comics are a collaboration and there's always a push and pull uh, between clamping down and demanding control and, and, and loosening up things, taking more risks, but letting things be more organic. And I always have as, as a creator err towards uh, giving myself less control because I think that also is another way of saying having more trust in your collaborators and when people feel trusted and respected, they do their best work possible. So that's how I have done books like Martian Manhunter with Riley. I mean, to actually kind of tie this whole podcast together. Um, you know, we use an open script style where, where I don't di- dictate paneling to him because I know uh, and trust him enough to do what he does best, better than I can imagine it. And with a thing like Darkhold, we're sort of scaling it up. We have teams that I know are incredible on these one shots. And... You know, we wouldn't have wanted them as part of this event if we didn't know they were great. So now it's time for us to get out of the way and let them do their best work possible in the center. And then we all bring it around for this massive Hail Mary double size issue, uh, the Omega issue coming after. And uh, if anyone isn't familiar with it yet and wants to get an example of what to expect with Darkhold, if you aren't familiar with what Milk Wars was. So Milk Wars was... uh, Steve worked on that with Gerard Way. It was sort of a crossover between the main DC universe and the Young Animals imprint, which was uh, became the home for like Doom Patrol, Mother Panic, Shade the Changing Girl. And uh, if you check that out, not only will it give you uh, sort of an example of what the format is with Darkhold, but uh, might also uh, pique some interest for you into the young animal stuff like Jody Hauser's uh, Mother Panic, uh, Gerard Way's Doom Patrol. There's a lot of good stuff there that uh, that's a, a good doorway to. And it's one of my favorite things that I've been able to be part of. I mean, nothing, it's not something I did myself, so I always like to say I'm part of it, but like there are things that I just, I mean, I got to write Batman and Flex Mattello on the same page. I'm greedy. <laughs> that's I never thought I'd be able to do. Uh, <laughs> Flex Mattello is my favorite book, so uh it's a wild event there's stuff you won't see anywhere else (laughs) there's stuff that actually ended up in the doom patrol show that shocked me and gerard actually uh from that event but uh i we'd love for you to check it out excellent well uh gramps do you want to hit up a lightning round there before we uh, get out of here uh sure so steve what this is is that you know i know we're close to and almost out of time but um you know we we just want to get to know you a little bit better and and ask some silly stupid questions uh that we you know get to know our creators you know more as friends than just you know uh guests on the show so being from new york you know this is the obligatory question which do you like deep dish or new york style pizza well you've only mentioned one kind of pizza in that question (laughs) yeah exactly um the other soup right no, let me say this. The real answer is I like Chicago deep dish. My only quandary, my only quarrel is with the naming of it, but it's delicious. Like, I'm not one of those people like Frank Thierry who's going to be like, fuck that garbage, fuck it. 
throw that piece of shit on the floor and fuck you for looking down. Like, no, whatever. Like, that is, I I sent, uh, just, I, I just want to interject, I sent Frank a message a while back, and when he didn't reply to it, I just sent, like, a little ahem, and he replied, like, yeah, fuck you, I see it. <laughs> oh, Frank, listen, I, short, short anecdote about Frank, one of my favorite people in comics. Controversial, but has always been, on a person-to-person level, an incredible dude to me, uh, even when I had some shit going on in my life, so... But also, like, just also the most unpretentious person I've ever met. So we're down in, um, we're down, it's a two-part story, and we can go long for it. So, uh, we're, we're, I'm at this show in Long Island, it doesn't matter where it is, because it wasn't super well attended. But Frank is there, and I'm there, and also other Frank, Frank Barberi is there. And we're sitting there, and this kid comes up to Thierry, and he'll deny this to this day, but it is true. Uh... And I shouldn't say kid, probably 14 to 16 years old, comes up to him with a copy of Space Punisher. And he's like, oh, you know, Mr. Thierry, like, it's really great to meet you. Uh, This is my favorite book. I love Space Punisher. And without missing a beat, he's just like, fuck you, kid. No, you don't. Nobody likes that book. (laughs) Straight up, like, destroys this kid's soul. Um, Obviously signs the book and, and, you know, pisses him off in his way. So I'm telling this story years later. Uh, in Kansas City, and we're out with this me, Frank, and Jason Aaron, and uh, I think Tynan is there. Oh, Tynan is there because he loved Frank, uh, Thierry's response to this. So I tell this story, and Jason's dying, and Tynan is dying, and, and Thierry is looking salty over there, looking like Silvio from The Sopranos, with his shoulders hunched up. <laughs> and uh, Jason just, just goes, but Frank, what's, what, is, what is Space Punisher? I didn't even know we did that book. And... Uh, like, again, perfect Terry response. He just looks at the table. He just goes, uh, fucking Punisher in space. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Got a ponytail. Fuck off. Get and, ponytail. Uh, yeah. and uh, you know, so so that is all to say. And actually, Frank did tell me, I, I have a thing where, I, where if we're at cons together, I try to find out what his room number is at hotels because I want to send him a local pizza. When we met, he always said, like, if, if, if you send me a fucking piece of pizza from this shit town, I will throw that piece of garbage on the floor. And I, <laughs> I want to see it happen. So he never tells me what room he's in. Uh. Um, but anyway, this is all to say, like, Chicago uh, deep dish is delicious. I'm not one of those assholes, but it's not pizza. OK. And by the way, I live in Boston now. And when my neighbor, who is the who was the uh, grand marshal of Boston Pride, we're at dinner. And he was like, well, Steve, you're so pretentious. My favorite type of pizza is Boston-style pizza. And I was like, Dale, you deserve to be a fucking ghost right now. <laughs> what is Boston pizza? I mean, uh, flavorless and mind-bendingly bad. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> okay. Being, being that you live in Boston, where do you pack your car? Jesus Christ. Uh, I've I have an overpriced parking spot because of our bizarre draconian street cleaning schedule. So thank you, Boston. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, what is your dream car? I fucking hate all of you. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I bizarrely want to own a, a, a not shitty version of the first car I ever drove, which is my parents' car from the early 2000s, which is very un romantic it's a it's a, it's a it's a not the latest model but the model before uh pontiac bonneville and that is like the most boring answer but i just want one because uh it was my parents car and i want to claim superiority by owning one now as an adult 
So I would like like a 1999 Pontiac Bonneville or 98, you know, uh, which I can now get. I've looked on Auto Trader for like a grand. I'm sure it runs great. So it's like getting back your childhood phone number and be like, look, mom and dad, it's my number now. Yes. Low stakes for that one for me. But that's the real answer. All right. And this is the last one. Um, We've kind of got this little tradition going where uh, the creator creators basically answer a question and then they come up with the next question for the next guy. And uh, I forgot who asked this question, but oh. if two, listen well, to this and, and think about this. This is, this is key. But this is a real asshole question. If two people are s- stranded on the moon and one killed the other would that be fucked up kill it was if two if two men are are on the moon and one man kills the other one with a rock would that be fucked up and that was from donny cates yeah would that be fucked up of course that's from donny no that's how rome was founded what is he talking about it'd be historic uh that's true actually as true as roman history is donny i expected better out of him well, the the story is that that's uh, a question that was emailed to Donnie and Ryan Stegman for their podcast. So Donnie transplanted it to ours to, to pose it to us because uh, he likes to get into all of the complexities of it. Like, you know, what were the circumstances right. and you know, why was he killing him and et cetera. Uh, but I but the real telling thing about Donnie is that the, it had to be a, like it's not like if some guy kills another guy with a rock is that fucked up. It's like is it fucked up if it's on the moon? Because otherwise, totally. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so it's more the it's more the the syntax of the question that's fascinating <laughs> to me. Uh, I mean, I to be fair, like I've never been to Austin, so I don't know what goes on there, but. <laughs> Uh, I have been to Dallas, uh, but yeah, I would say uh, it's momentous, not fucked up. That's my answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, and um, if you could make up a question for the next guest, what, what what would you like to ask? And it can be anything. Who is it? Doesn't matter. Oh, but it does. Um, <laughs> let me uh, see um, who is uh, our next. I don't know if. Oh, yeah, you, you might know him. Our next guest will be uh, Jason Fabuck, actually. I do know Jay. A little bit. Uh, he's a very nice Canadian. Yep. Um, he, he's local for me here. He lives about 20 minutes away from me. He's Jay's, He's in my top 10 Canadians, but he's behind <laughs> David Finch and Chris Jericho. And, Van, <laughs> and Vampiro. So he's still in the top 10, though. <laughs> um, oh, and Ed Brisson. Yeah, ooh, maybe he's not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh... A random ass question. Yeah. While while you think about it, I'll give you a minute to think about it, and I'll just say that when you told that story of Frank yelling at a kid, I was hoping that the twist was due to his propensity for being yelled at that that little kid was going to turn out to have been Kean Tormey, because uh, he told <laughs> us the story of being yelled at by Klaus Jansen. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Interesting. Um, I didn't even I didn't even know that about Kian. Uh, we only DM because of the weird time difference. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, 
All right, so there's a public domain Jack Kirby character named the Vagabond Prince, who is a greeting card writer by day and a vigilante by night. And I would like to know what the best name for his sidekick is. And his best name, name for sidekick, okay. Is the Vagabond Prince, and he is a greeting card writer by night who gets pushed too far and becomes a vigilante. This is all true. Um, he does have a real sidekick in real life, but fuck that. I want to know what you think it would be for a greeting card writing vigilante. Best name for sidekick. And now optional, do, do you, does J, is Jay going to be required to draw said sidekick? If you can get him to do it, absolutely. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll shoot for it. He actually has two sidekicks. Fuck. So he actually, I'll give you guys the secret answer. What is he, Batman? <laughs> I know. He has a boy sidekick named Chief Justice. And then he also has, like, what appears to be a middle-aged sidekick named the Jester. Whose real name is Falstaff. So it was a book filled with subtle literary illusions. <laughs> so that, that should uh, play into his choice, then. If you can get Fabok to draw the Vagabond Prince or his hypothetical sidekick for this podcast, that would be hilarious. It is. <laughs> he looks. It might be. I, I was just talking to him yesterday, and he, he has as as few places to go as the rest of us do. So, Vagabond Prince looks like if Jack Kirby adapted the musical The Music Man. Like it's not a great design. I'll send you the link um, right now. Anyway, that's my question. <laughs> Awesome. All we'll right. ask it, and uh, I'll, I'll let you know if we uh, if we get an illustration out of it. Uh, thank God, be the best redesign that Jay's ever done, hands down, and he's already done some great ones. But nothing will compare it to Vagabond Prince. Look at his stupid hat. I just sent it to Robin because that's the email I have. <laughs> I'll open up my email here. But it's real. It's a. It's created by Simon and Kirby, man. Why didn't he end up like Captain America? We don't know. We're not sure. Could have been the hat. Refresh I don't know. my email here. Um, but there we go. But, oh yeah, there we go. Okay, I'm going to save this picture, and I'm going to put it up so the other guys can see it here. Hey, Steve, before we let you go, um, would could we ask a favor and have, like, um, a tag that we can put at the end of the episode just saying, this is Steve Orlando, you're listening to Bat Force Radio, or, or something simple like that? Yeah, just tell me when to say it. Go for it. Hey folks, this is Steve Orlando, and you are listening to Bat Forest Radio. That was one of the most professional ones we've ever I was heard. To say that's like the best one we've ever had. Well, and I... we've had we've had like polar opposites. We had Paul Dini uh, because he's done voice acting. He just without prompting went through like eight different versions of it, just <laughs> chained them all together. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you have Tom King 
who uh, you can hear him in the beginning in the intros of our episodes. He just says, this is Tom King. I write Batman, bitch. <laughs> well, Tom, oh. yeah, Tom, like, his anxiety is probably such that he can't even make eye contact with the icon of you guys on Skype. So it's got to be hard for him. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I will say, dunking on Tom, we are friends, by the way. Uh, yeah. I just, I just like, like, Tom and I have the most sullen opinions as 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 beleaguered half Jews uh, that I've ever met in real life. And I love I mean, we just on the phone yesterday and it's there's no amount of self-deprecation that here I will not perpetrate. So it's <laughs> it's stunning. It's stunning. But anytime I make a joke about Tom on social, just so you know, it's one he's made about himself. And that's why it's extra entertaining to me. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the time. Uh, we will let you get back to your workouts and the rest of your work day uh thank you so much for taking the time to do this and everyone watch out for Darkhold. hopefully uh books are not uh pushed back rescheduled as a result of everything that's happening but we look forward to it all right thank you folks we'll uh we'll we'll see you soon thanks right, steve thank have you. a good day yep bye-bye